0: By doing so, you will be supporting meaningful Jewish educational content, funding the next generation of leaders, as well as furthering Jewish wisdom to people all over the country and all over the world. Please visit www.ValleyBetMidrash.org. Thank you so much and enjoy the program.
1: Today we've been speaking about various areas in, in cloning and agunot and tonight um, you're interested in hearing a little bit more about um, more practical issues of withholding withdrawing treatment of the terminally ill. And this is a very important subject um, with healthcare decisions about withholding, withdrawing treatment. I don't know if anyone here is in the medical profession, but certainly if you go into hospitals, you see that almost every encounter between healthcare professionals and patients require a decision to be made about treatment options. And I think I will begin with the same way that I'm going to end, which is no matter what we decide here, no matter what we say here, one thing that is so important, and I urge everyone, and I, whenever I give a lecture around these topics, um, I say it to people of all ages. And I've lectured for, with, with high school students and college students as well as with adults, which is everyone should take the opportunity um, to find themselves a healthcare proxy, to craft themselves a living will, so that their wishes, what they would like, their halachic desires, no matter if it's within halacha or if it's um, in matters of just what you would like for yourself, so that those are known, and the the healthcare proxy who you choose, who you choose, it's very critical. Um, for you to think about a person who you think can really enforce your wishes, what you want in your life, um, even no matter what, what they feel. It's important for them to be able to really advocate on your behalf. Um, and so if there's one thing that you walk home with tonight, even if you don't know what, I, what Ramosha Feinstein says or what the Gemara says, it doesn't matter to me, for you to be able to go and know that it's very important for you to have someone in your life <coughs> who you feel can advocate for you, um, um, when you cannot for yourself. And they're difficult conversations to make, but they're necessary ones. So in most cases, when we talk about um, end of life issues, um, the idea of stopping when to stop treatment, or when it's necessary um, to begin some kind of treatment, is really will raise fundamental questions about the nature and the purpose of caring for a patient and the ethics of end of life. And the full scope of this issue is truly beyond what we're going to be covering tonight. But when we speak about withholding, withdrawing treatment from the terminally ill, one needs to include judgments about futility of treatment, patient autonomy, and what is the mandate we're going to talk about within Jewish law today. So what is the mandate within the halachic discussion regarding end-of-life treatment. And we're going to begin kind of backwards. We're going to start with, to be able to understand this, what is the criteria of death, what it is, and then we'll work backwards to know, when must we stop treatment? When is treatment worthwhile? And those are some of the issues that I hope that we can cover. When we talk about the criteria of death, there is not one universal definition of death. You ask scientists or healthcare professionals what's biological death, and they'll say, "Well, quite frankly, biological death is when each and every cell in the body has ceased to function." So that could be three months after someone is already underground, because one's hair and 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 nails and there are certain cells within someone's body, their skin continues to proliferate proliferate, sorry. So that is something important for you to realize that we really don't ask scientists to define death. There's another determination of death, which is the absolute and irreversible cessation of all cardiac circulatory and respiratory activities and function, what a lot of people call call, um, cardiopulmonary death. There's also total and irreversible cessation of all brain activities, including the brainstem, what is known as, as brain death. And finally, there's the irreversible cessation of respiration, what we call brain stem death. Other definitions, definitions will include upper brain function, um, persistent irreversible coma, um, absence of brain, like anencephalics. People will define death differently. But those are some of the determinations. The, these criteria are still being worked on. Um, not only in the United States, but in countries all over the world. But today, we're gonna talk about how does halacha, how does Jewish law define death? And in Jewish law, death will be established even though some body cells and tissues may still be alive. So the scientific definition of death is out. This disagreement among modern rabbinic decisors relate to the establishment of the organ or function which determines the moment of death. So there are going to be a lot of ifs now. So if we're going to say that it's cerebral brain function and it ceased irreversibly and the cerebral hemisphere in the area which defines living, then perhaps the irreversible damage and lack of function in that region, we could declare someone dead. So there are medical situations which really resemble that of an irreversible state, even though it's not. Um, one example, anyone have an idea where something looks like it potentially is irreversible, but it ends up not being? Intoxication. What? Intoxication. Intoxication could be? Anesthesia. What? Anesthesia. Anesthesia could be. So we need to really be able to determine, right, Um, And I was thinking about something a little bit more long-term when we're talking about a medical medical diagnosis, which is what we call PVS, persistent vegetative state, where anyone remember the Terry Shaevo case a while ago? And also there have been cases where people have woken up from what we call PVS, but then only retroactively we say, well, then they were never in a state of PVS. So... It's hard, what happens with a PVS case is that, is this a supportable criteria for death? And we're gonna actually get into that at the very end of our discussion this evening. Um, The thing that's a little difficult about a persistent vegetative state is that these individuals can breathe on their own. And so when you're trying to determine um, if someone's just like kind of in this state of, of breathing on their own and their heart is beating, yet they're in a very deep coma, comatose type state, Um, what we call a vegetative state and certain parts of their body is not responding where there may be pain stimulus but we don't know but they really are not aware of their surroundings because certain parts of their brain is not functional anymore. Is this person declared dead by a criteria of death? So that's something we're going to have to discuss later on. So let's go into the source material that you have. I apologize again that sometimes I like to give I like to give a little bit more material than we actually will cover, only because I would like you to have stuff to go home with and actually read a little bit more about it. Um, but um, let's just begin. Um, and we will we will see how much we'll cover. But I think what I'll do is um, we'll read a little bit, but we'll maybe I'll just r- relate to some of the texts. So we're going to start with source one, uh, really just to kind of think about in Jewish law about um, the determination of death, I'm sorry that's a little bit um, dark, um, so on your, on, your, um, on your source booklet it should be source number one. And if anyone would like to read I can call on you in a little bit. Um, Mishnah, so this is taken from the Mishnah and it's a case of what's going on on Shabbos or on Yantif nafla, alav ma polet, safek Safe no sham, safek chay, safek mate. Something, you know, some. It reminds me a lot of 9/11, quite frankly, um, because this is actually what happened. If there's a building or there's debris that falls on someone, right, and and they don't know, there's a doubt whether or not the person's alive or dead. Um, so the question is, what can I do um, on the Shabbat? Can I remove this for purposes of pikuach nefesh, which means saving a life? We know we are allowed to save a life on Shabbat. We can do any of the 39 malachot, 39 um, um, prohibitions in order to save a life, right? So we can, so what what does that involve? It involves, you know, what we call choresh, where you have to kind of dig, you have to pick up, you have to move, you have to do a lot of those activities. So is that permitted to do? Yes, if you think that you're gonna be able to save a life. But what happens when you find out that you're doing this and then you can see that the person's no longer breathing? At what point do you say that that person is no longer alive and then I cannot violate Shabbat? So the Mishnah says that if debris falls on someone, if they're found to be alive, then you continue to remove the debris. So now there's a Gemara on this in Yoma. um, And this is the next source. Which clarifies for us just a little bit more. The question is, how far do I need to search to determine whether or not someone is alive or not alive? So it's not only how far. When I say how far to search, let's say it's a, it's a pile of debris, right? So do I, I uncover someone's head from top down or from the feet up? So it's not only just like removing rubble this way. Sometimes, excuse me, you can uncover someone's head and you're moving down. Or so. so The question is how far do you go so until someone reaches his nose and if you're going from from bottom up and later on if you look at the schemara there's a whole discussion what are you talking about from up to the nose but what happens if you're going from feet up you know you're gonna what about the mouth you have to go beyond the mouth to the nose so they both determine that you have to go to up to the nose so if it's from bottom up you go up past the heart to the nose if you're going from top down you stop at the nose, and that's enough. You don't have to clear debris beyond that. Why? What are they determining death to be, probably? Breathing, respiration. And there's actually a question. There's a lot of interesting, if you're into differing additions, right, or you see distinctions between the, the Babylonian Talmud and the Jerusalem Talmud. You see, the Jerusalem Talmud actually has something that says they think it's up to The stomach here it says is it the heart or is it the stomach they they say beat no like the the belly because what is that the heartbeat or as you feel someone's going in and out right so the truth is the heart is not the determination based on the Gemara standard it's really breathing which is an interesting position if you keep on going to the later more secondary sources rabbinic literature um, and by the way, just to kind of prove my point, you look at Rashi, Rashi explains, who's a commentary on the Talmud, would explain what we said. If there's no life in his nose, that it does not exhale, he is surely dead. Um, and, and I'm sorry, one more thing I wanted to point out, and this is an important statement, that it says, aval mimala Mata, when he goes from top to down, kevan debadakle ad chotmo, because he checked to his nose, he doesn't have to go any further, meaning if he doesn't feel that there's any breath there, right? You have to do that. Why do we say that that's the determination? The same way God gave us life, God breathed life into through the nostrils, that's how we determine the end of life. And so for this Gemara, clearly, the determination of death would be um, based on a respiratory standard. Now, what I mentioned earlier, one of the criteria of death would be respiration, right? And, of course, we would talk about irreversible cessation of respiration, which would be CPR, that, that you wouldn't have to do CPR, you wouldn't need to do any of that. If you sense, if you can do some kind of apnea test, or they used to do something called the carotid angiography test, or they would do radioisotope testing, they were able to determine whether or not someone was able... If they were breathing. And if it, if the blood stopped going toward the medulla oblongata, the midbrain, then they would. Then they would not have to go beyond that. And that is the determination. I said, I really want you to remember to do a healthcare proxy, but I, I will get to Ramosha Feinstein too. I want you to that Ramosha Feinstein's gonna cover that. Great question. Okay? And what we're gonna see also um, is that when we're thinking about this determination of of death, um, it's going to matter. Um, if I'm going to continue to treat or I'm going to say that I'm, I'm going to withhold certain treatments. So this is going to be necessary as we're moving forward. Um, and just to show you, we don't really have to go deeply into it, but the Rishonim, for the most part, I would say, also say that the determination of death really would be um, upon the nose. And Rambam says right here, and, and I'll do it in English, if anyone wants to read it we read just for time purposes, check until his nose and upon examination, excuse me, no sign of breathing can be detected at his nose, the victim must be left where he is. Meaning you can't do anything then that the person has been determined as dead. Okay, now most of the Rishonim people in the Renaissance medieval time period um, very important halachic um, Jewish legal documents have been written during that time. And you see that the determination of death, for the most part, has been respiration. There have been a few who have mentioned respiration alongside cardiac as well. But for the most part, it is, um, it is respiration. And this is also what we see in the Shochanarach. Even if he's found so severely injured that he can't live for more than a short while, one must clear the probe, the debris, until one reaches his nose. If no sign of life can be detected at the nose, he is surely dead. It makes no difference whether they had first uncovered his head or his feet. So again, kind of taking from the Gemara, the Shokhanarach, Rav Yosef Karo, says the same thing. I don't know if you know this, but even I remember my husband's grandmother who was from Germany had something written in her will that she must um, not be buried, how luckily we try to bury within three days, but wait until the third day. You know why people thought that? Because they thought that maybe people were still breathing, we couldn't believe that when, unfortunately when she passed away, she was very close to us, when she passed away that was it was interesting to see that that was actually in her will. Um, the lawyers told us that she said that that was very important in her living will, that, that you wait what did people used to do anyone know what they used to do a long time ago to determine if someone was dead what they held up a mirror they held up a mirror yeah and they would see if they were breathing now we have a little bit more a little bit more sophisticated instruments to be able to determine that but it was what i'm sorry feathers yes and then ah we're going to feathers and pillows Feathers and pillows, and we're actually going to get to that in a moment, so thank you for that. Very, very knowledgeable audience here. Very nice. Um, Here's an example of a modern-day Posaic, Rabbi Bleich, who actually says that brain death and irreversible coma are not acceptable definitions of death, insofar as Bahalach is concerned. He says it's cessation of cardiac and respiration. So it's interesting that he kind of merges the Gemara together, that you go beyond the heart, just to check the nose, but he wants to double check. And there are a few, again, I said, we showed him like that, who, who believe that. So I wanted to put that in. But to kind of come back to the point, Rabbi Tendler, who was Rav Moshe Feinstein's son-in-law, actually, and that's source 6A. And I'm, again, I'm just going through these sources quite quickly, um, but for you to kind of have uh, a guide, um, if you were to look these over again, that he actually says that Rav Moshe Feinstein said, Brain death is a criterion for confirming death in a patient who already has irreversible absence of spontaneous respiration, and this is supported by more and more rabbis. To kind of prove the point of Moshe Feinstein, um, there, was a, there was a doubt whether he actually held by irreversible cessation of respiration, um, but there was a well-known doctor, Elliot Bondi, um, when a lot of, it was a very interesting thing that sometimes happens when a great um a great, uh, a great decisor passes away, and people don't know for sure what they're thinking. So people fight to say, what did he really say? Um, but he had a letter that actually, and I actually have a copy of the letter, and I can even, I don't have the actual letter, but I have a copy of the actual letter. You can go to the Halachic Organ Donation Society website and see a copy of the letter, where of Moshe Feinstein really says that the Halakh determination of death is via irreversible cessation of respiration. And I do wanna say this is very interesting because because if it's irreversible cessation of respiration, then that's going to be very important when people um, who now with our modern day technological advancements, people are connected to a respirator. And we can determine whether or not someone actually can continue to breathe on their own or not. Um, and we can imagine when we're talking about withholding, withdrawing, treatment of the terminally ill, how not to extend someone's life or the suffering of, and I'm not only talking about the patient, but also the family, um, to see um, a family suffering and what is permissible by Jewish law. So now that we're talking about, we kind of understand that for the most part, we can hold by either irreversible cessation of respiration or by cardiac and irreversible cessation of respiration. And whatever it is, by the way, it should be irreversible. Meaning I remember where Rabbi Dr. Avram Steinberg, um, who is incredible, we have some texts for him for you to read. He won the Press Israel many years ago for his incredible work on Encyclopedia Hilchati Refuit. It's an encyclopedia of medical ethics and halacha. And I remember him talking about irreversible cessation of respiration, and he said... What does it mean that it's irreversible? It means that the person's not gonna be able to breathe again. (laughs) So some people, like if I hold my breath, and I can hold my breath, and what's the name of David Blaine, and I can hold my breath underwater forever, that's not irreversible. I can make sure, I mean, I don't know what he does, but (laughs) that's not irreversible. It has to be something where you know that there's a ceasing of activity in the midbrain where we know that the impetus for breathing can't happen anymore. Going back
0: to your, your rubble story
1: on Yeah, 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 please.
0: You're a light person in the field and you're removing the rubble. How do you make that determination? Mm-hmm. you have the medical uh, ability? you mm-hmm. have the equipment? How do you make that, that determination?
1: So, the way in which they used to make the determination, right, um, is that they were able to, from the nose, right, they were able to actually feel like sometimes people actually would put a mirror there when you set a feather sometimes people will put it there and they would see something move there should be some kind of fluttering and if you're not sure if it's a suffix if it's doubtful and you're not a hundred percent sure then you can continue to remove the debris if you're 100 percent sure and you don't feel anything there's nothing there's no sometimes even people say go to the mouth and you kind of push on their body.
0: But that doesn't mean it's
1: irreversible. That's- ah, good point. So how do you know that it's not irreversible? That's a good point. The Gamar doesn't talk about irreversibility, because I think they can't determine irreversibility. Nowadays, we can determine irreversibility. And with a technological advancement um, in many of our hospitals, all these equipment that we have, we can actually test for irreversibility. That's why we're talking about it now. It used to be, you're right, that they would wait they would see, they would just leave the person there and they would double check. But that's a really good point. And I don't think I've ever heard anyone make that point before, that I think during the time of the Gemara, they needed to wait a significant more amount of time um, than is let on here. Um, The question is, can you violate Shabbat um, and continue to, and maybe you're right. How do you know? I mean, the idea is there were certain tests that, Hazal would talk about that the rabbis would talk about how you put a mirror there you put a feather there like you had mentioned you put like your hand there you you know put other things there to be able to determine but in retrospect it could have been that that was irreversible I think the idea is if debris is on a person for such a long period of time and then you remove it um, at a certain point if you really don't feel anything probably um, the person is dead but at the same time I think it's a point well taken. I don't think now that we know about irreversibility, um, it could be that they made these determinations too quickly. You Good point. Not sure you can continue if you're if there's a suffix, you can continue. Well, yeah. Wouldn't it not be you can continue? Wouldn't you be obligated to continue? Good point. Absolutely. So if you're not sure, great point. If you're not sure, then that's kind of along the lines of what you were saying. There were certain criteria that needed to be met during the time of the Gemara, where they would have certain tests that you would be able to do that in there, not as a medical professional, but as someone who is there. And you're right. So if I don't know with certainty, then I am obligated to continue on. Excellent. Yeah. I mean, the obvious thing is
0: that you're going to go from the head down and recover the debris, and the chest can't lift the debris.
1: Then there's nothing that... Right, so I don't think they realize that connection. So they were essentially sentencing people to death who would have otherwise <laughs> Could have been. Or, or one could say, and, and I think that that's a important point that you're making. Um, what they're trying to say is the real, um, the real qualification or criteria of life is in the breathing and i think that's what they were trying to say but what you're saying is in the determ- in the in the defining the criteria of death what they ended up doing is also by implication saying that you shouldn't go any further and not understanding how the chest cavity really pushing down on you will not enable <laughs> Yeah. I mean, we know a lot more now than they knew then, the way things were connected. But, but you're right. But that is how... But, but, the, but what... You're right. And the medicine that's brought in is questionable. Um, however, the way halacha is trying to determine life and death is what I'm trying to bring out here. But you're absolutely right. I think that we don't learn medicine from here. Um, we also, unfortunately, if people did take it as literally as that, and there's a debris situation, it's quite unfortunate. Um,
0: yeah, okay. My My is a little bit of a tangent, so it's too big of a tangent to push it off. Yeah, okay. But, um, we have this modern utilitarian idea that saving more lives is better than saving less lives, right? It's better to save 100 than save 10. Right, but traditionally, we don't have that idea. We have the idea that one life is worth the world. Mm-hmm. And one life, you, you can't sacrifice one life to save a 100 lives. Right? So obviously, there's no idea of killing one to save more. Mm-hmm. But do we see any traditional texts that indicate that we should be as lenient as possible on, on, on extending life or on classifying death based upon the potential to save more? And part of the question today, do 25% of healthcare costs go to end-of-life treatments? is kind of, right? So is there any sense that more, saving more lives is better? We see that kind of
1: idea. It's a wonderful question. I will say that I'm not going to adequately answer the question for you, Lee, but I will say this, that we take each case as it comes in. Because you can never, certainly we have that with triage, right? When cases come in one after the other, um, it's a wartime situation. So you try your best to do what you can, right? Like the beds are filling up, and this person, should I push this person away? It's kind of like a lifeboat ethics thing, a little bit. Um, do I push that person away um, to be able to make room to save more lives? Do I, is, is it, uh, the, and, and I would say... La <laughs> halacha. Um, it's as soon as everyone, you, as the person comes in, that's how you treat them. You have to do that because the slippery slope is then you don't. Each individual isn't um, being accounted for. However, you lose a great deal with that. Um, so I'm not doing it justice in terms of the utilitarian question, when you asked it from more philosophical basis. If you're asking me from a perspective, I answered you. If you're asking me how do I feel about it in terms of um, practically how does it really play out in an ER um, during wartime, during 9-11, it's different. Because um, you, you simply have to move um, and you simply need to try to... Have the best Did I answer. Would, 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 would you
0: agree that in a case where someone could donate their organs and wishes to die, and they can donate, five, they can save five lives at that five lives at that moment, that we should look to embrace the the most lenient definition of what death would be in order to fulfill that wish? Mm.
1: Um, that's not for us to make that determination. Okay. So the determination of life and death um, is a halachic um, determination. Um, And if a person wish, and they have who to rely upon if they want to say um, irreversible cessation restoration or with cardiac, because that usually or the Harvard model of brain death, the Harvard criteria. Um, With that determination, um, we give a person that autonomy to be able to make that determination for themselves, and it's not within us to make that decision for them, but. But we don't, we don't make that decision, nor should we. Um, and that's going to be something that we'll get to when we talk about the healthcare proxy. Um, but how far you should go with saving a life is where we're going to. Oh, it's such a good question, so we don't have to finish tonight. Yeah, I, just, I want to hear all of them, yeah. You made a, um, uh, a quick comment concerning the war. Um, yeah.
0: When a nation's funding for the survival. Yeah. Uh, does this
1: So you're talking wartime, or you're yes, talking, talking time. You've made a, 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 a. like when, when, for example, if someone works works as a medic in the army.
0: Well, that's, that's correct. Yeah. You, have, you have an extremely religious person who doesn't want to be moved for
1: three days. Mm-hmm. Or, or, uh, I mean,
0: I, just what I, from what I see in the papers, people people move quickly. They do what they think they can to save the person, mm-hmm. uh, and they do it the same as they be done. Americans
1: were in, in Iraq. Well, it's interesting because a number of I years... No, I'm
0: not suggesting
1: that. I mean, yes. No, you're asking a wonderful question. Um, Rav Orbach, who's at Eretz Chemda, taught me when I was in Nishmat years ago, and he gave me all his notes because he was, um, for the Israeli army, he was the one who taught them about pikuach nefesh, which is saving a life, and what the criteria was. You follow the armies directive for the most part. Um, there, I guess a soldier sometimes in the Army, it's a little bit different. Um, and, and what the medics are told to do um, in terms of saving a life and that determination um, might be a little different than a private matter in a private hospital. Um, because you need to have uh, clear and defined criteria for the medics who are working there. Um, In the American Army, for example, the U.S. Army, um, they try to also be considerate of different religious beliefs. Um, You don't have such a distinction so much in the Israeli Army, although you do um, have other religions. Um, It gets a little complicated. I have a very close friend whose brother was killed in Iraq, and he was he was. Um, he's, a, he's a Jew, he was one of the founders of B'nai Baghdad a number of years ago. And it was complicated because they needed to remove him. He was in the green, the green area and it was complicated who was going to move him and the Shomrim. Um, but they had to get him out. So they didn't go with, because it put other soldiers' lives at risk at that point. So, but those were live, bless you, those were live soldiers. So, you're, trying, you're talking about now competing values of um, whose rights. It gets very complicated, I would say. But I think I, these are the complexities, and I, I, I appreciate that you're kind of sensing that, and it's not just like a, a one-night lecture kind of give and take. And, and thank you for that. No, thank you for your question. yeah.
0: Um, in, in the terrible situation where you can only uh, save one life between mm-hmm. the child and its mother, mm-hmm. is there
1: Is the child born or you're talking an unborn child? Unborn. unborn child is a much easier. Thank you for saying that, I, I have an easier answer for you. Um, <laughs> unborn child, we always, um, in Jewish law, uh, not in Catholic, in Jewish law you save the mother's life to, uh, according to even at the very end of the pregnancy. And I know it's been circulating over the past few weeks with uh what's going on in the supreme court but definitely you save the mother's life too. Um, yeah. So so clearly if it's the uh, you don't choose one over the other. They both have equal rights as as full-fledged you human beings. No right. Where
0: you should
1: put your energy? Right. There isn't. It's you do the best you can for either obviously if one is clearly in a more critical state um, you still do your best to save both Um, if you have for example an organ that needs to be given right Um, so clearly the person who you think because of the scarcity of resources who can um, be the most successful with that organ you would give if it's something like that Um, but you never say Hayeka Codeman. You never say that. You never say that this person's life is more valuable than the other. Um, okay. So we're going to go on to the importance of saving a life. We still have not yet to get into withholding withdrawing treatment of the terminally ill, but before we can do that, it's important to save a life. Um, and because of your amazing questions, I'm going to. I'm going to zip through these sources, and so please follow along with me. We're going to go on a little bit of a ride. Um, but this, what Rav Shmuley mentioned before, and I'm not going to say Mi Israel, even though I put it on there. I did it for a purpose. To save someone's life is tantamount to saving a whole world. The value of human life is infinite. Um, and so every life you try to save. Um, the reason I don't love that definition of Mi Israel, it means... To save a life of Israel. Um, this is what was put into Argomar's as we have it nowadays. But if you look at it, earlier versions of the Talmud that we have, they didn't have me, Israel. It was actually put in. And later on, rabbinic literature actually took out me, Israel, where if you look at the Rambam or others, they don't have me, Israel, in there, which is to me very important. Every life has infinite value, it's not just a Jewish life. Um, So when we're talking about triage in a hospital, we're talking about any person. And when you're talking about in wartime or whatnot, every person's life is infinitely valuable. What? Yes, it is. Yes, it is. And that's an important thing. Then there is a lot of things that are very, um, very similar. Excellent. Yes. So we have to understand that saving a life. And we're going to talk about withholding, withdrawing treatment, pulling the plug. Our first go-to is that saving a life, the concept of that we try to preserve even a moment of life, it's of critical importance. And that's something that we need to value um, before we even talk about um, when treatment needs to stop. And the only thing that we would say that would stand in the way from saving a life are three things, which is, of Otazara, Rayot, and Shvihut Damim, which is idolatry, forbidden sexual relations, and murder. One would say it's kind of like going against um, the whole idea of why God gave us life. Um, but these are the three things. Like if someone says, I'll kill you, uh, I'll, if you don't kill that person, I'll kill you, you're not allowed to do that. Um, what? So if someone says. Yes. So as a Jew, right, if someone says, um, I'll kill you, or, you know, idol, wor- like, you know, do this, um, you know, for, for saving a life, you know, you do, I, you know, do uh, perform some kind of idol worship, or do some kind of inappropriate sexual act, right, like an incestuous act, you have to sacrifice your life for that, rather than, um, rather than, um, you know, do the act. Like if someone says, eat pig, or I'll kill you, you eat pig. If someone says, bow down to an idol, you're supposed to say, I will not do that. Um, Okay? All right. Now, withholding, withdrawing, treatment of the terminal AL. Okay. Let me make sure I didn't skip anything. Um, And I think we're good. Okay. Um, So the first thing I want to talk about is that there are some very interesting cases within the Talmud, which demonstrate an acute sensitivity to um, people who are suffering, suffering from illness. Um, Of course, we want to save a life, and we want to do anything we can. But sometimes there are situations when you see that either the quality of life or the pain and the suffering that this person is going through is so difficult that what is the law say and a lot of times people will say well you save a life no matter what and the question is is that truly living and while you know it's very easy to say no you keep on treating i think that it's worthwhile for us to just examine a few of these texts and i'd like to read them because i feel that they really speak a little bit to the sensitivity of life and what it means to live a quality life and that when life sometimes is a little painful, and then at that point maybe um, we should consider alternatives. Would anyone like to read? This is Source 10. Um, This looks like an active bunch. You have what to say. Would anyone like to think? Okay, so this is what was going down. So we have this person, Rabbi Yehuda HaNasi, one of the greatest sages who put together the Mishnah that we have. At the end of his life, he was really suffering a great deal. He has this very trustworthy servant, maid servant. Um, she actually is known to be a great Tamida Chachama. She actually even codifies, um, or they don't really codify law in the time of the Gemara, but she actually has I, um, halakhic statements that they follow. She is respected and valued, and her actions are actually viewed with great positivity. Um, so here's a story where Rabbi Yehuda Nasi is obviously. <laughs> in terrible pain his students don't want him to die right and his students want him to stay so what do we do when we don't want someone to die because we love them so much and we care about them we want them to stay here but he's suffering and so they're praying and they're praying and clearly their prayer according to this Talmud uh, Talmudic statement it was so strong that it would keep him alive so so now we're going to see a little bit about his suffering please continue Why did he do that? Because he'd have to run back and forth to the bathroom. And during that time, he would wear his fill in all day long. So he had to take it off to go to the bathroom, and then he'd come back. And it would involve great difficulty. So go ahead, yeah. To go back and forth
0: to the toilet, she pleaded that the angel should persuade the mortals and allow them to die, but still to no avail. Finally, she then ascended to the roof and threw some dishes to
1: the ground when the crowd stopped praying for an instant. But he died. It's a powerful story, right? So here's the desire, and she's very close to him. And here's the desire um, for someone. She sees this pain and suffering, and, and clearly he's in great anguish. And what does she do? So at first, like, it's a good thing, right? And, you know, everyone's davening for him. You know, it's like I, I have a, a close colleague um, he's, he's a very well-known scholar um, and he was talking when his mother he wrote a very powerful piece actually when his mother um, had Alzheimer's for about 10 years I think she suffered from Alzheimer's went through the Holocaust and then had this kind of suffering knew no one, terrible and at a certain point the suffering was so great for the children grandchildren for his father and he said what are we praying for right everyone says you know we're doing this refuah shlema mishaberach," over and over again what are we praying for and so he wrote a very important piece that at a certain point we pray and we pray and there's a side of a compassion that you want this person to not endure and 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 Rebbe's, um, Rebbe's maidservant, she was like his um, um, what's what's it called, like uh, uh, what's the female butler? What's, what do we call that? Uh, May I don't know what. <laughs> <laughs> um, so she was at his side all the time, and, and she saw it, and it was so it it was so painful. Um, so what we learned from this is that she found a way, perhaps, to maybe withhold some treatment, right, by, wait, by, by really distracting and making that stop.
0: It also reinforces the power of prayer.
1: Yeah, at least their prayer. Right. Their prayer. And the kavana, right, the, the deep um, intention um, that God couldn't even, God couldn't let him go. God couldn't take him away. Right. It's a very powerful piece. I like it very much. And yes.
0: I do notice that it says that everyone prayed for mercy. It doesn't say everyone prayed for mercy. So maybe there's... Ah. That.
1: I never thought about that. That's lovely. That they prayed for mercy upon him. But then why did he stay alive? That's a great comment, though.
0: Well, because God doesn't always answer the prayer
1: immediately. <laughs> <laughs> nice. I had to think about that. I love this group. Okay. So, um, so that's one story. We have another. And this source, we read about. This is going to be something familiar to you. We read about it twice a year, on Yom Kippur, and we read about it on Tisha B'av. It's one of the Asara Haruge Malchut one of the 10 martyrs who maybe you're familiar with when we read about their stories during the Roman oppression and how they took 10, Rabbi Akiva's among them, um, 10 scholars and brutally killed them, tortured them and killed them. So here's one story. Um, It's in, it's long so I actually, didn't put the English in but the Hebrew's here. Um, if anyone's interested in reading the English, it's on, it's um, source number um, 12. Uh, no, source number 11. Would anyone like to read source number 11? Um, it's, it's something familiar to you, and this actually, when it says, Amru, Loha Yuyamimu atim at Yassi ben Kisma. Rabbi Yassi ben Kisma was one of the people who was also brutally killed. So it was only after a few days that he died. Bahal chukogedele rome likavro and they gave eulogies, has Spaid Gadol a great eulogy of a Khazratan. Well Rabbi Ben There is a well-known Rabbi, Rav Khanina Ben Trajion. His daughter is Bruria, one of the great scholars also, and this story actually changes in different contexts. But she's also there with her sister. We don't know exactly who her sister was, but you see them sometimes also Calling out when he's suffering, but what does he do? You know that the Romans said that you're not supposed to be studying Torah. But there he is, right after. After the hespe, after the eulogy is over, you see him sitting there, both Torah learning Torah openly. and he's teaching Torah. The Sefer Torah sefer Torah, He has a Sefer Torah open. An actual Sefer Torah with the cloth open on his lap. So what happens? (laughs) It didn't take long. You can follow along with me. What happened? What did the Romans do? They took that Sefer Torah. You can read along with me and I'll just paraphrase. They took that Sefer Torah and they wrapped him in it and they shoved wool in between, right, and they brought sponges, right? And they soaked them with water and they put it close to where his heart would be, right? What what would that do? So that he wouldn't die so quickly. They wanted to prolong that suffering, right? If you have woolen, wet woolen sponges and then the Sefer Torah is around it and then you set it ablaze, right? It's going to take a while. It's going to be very smoky, and it's going to be very painful. And the children, so this is Amrulo Tamidav. You have another, um, you have another st- um, detail of it when, when Bruria was calling out his, like, Daddy, open your mouth. You know, open, Abba, open your mouth. They said, Rabbi Ma Taroel, what do you see? And he said he sees the, the letters of the Sefer Torah flying up, and they say, open up your mouth. Open up your mouth and let, and let the flames come in so that you can die quicker. And what's his response? Oh, no, no, no. You don't hasten your death, right? He says, It's better that the one who gave life, do you know, take my life. He can't hasten his own death. He can't allow himself to die quicker than God intends for him to die. Now, mind you, he's speaking, so he's opening his mouth a little bit. But, um, you know, so then this is such an event that even the executioner himself is so moved by Rav Hanina Ben Tradion that what, what does he say? He's making a deal. He says, if I will like kind of raise the torches a little bit more and I will remove the sponges, and he's clearly moved by this man, this Rebbe. He says, if I remove the sponges, will you make sure that I have a place, this is the executioner, that I have a place in Olam Haba. Can you ensure there's, you know, you were talking about the mercy, you know, the power of their prayer before. I'm sorry, um, what's your name? David, you were saying about the power of prayer, right? So clearly there's some, like in Khaza, you see it all the time. And we're gonna see another one, Choni Hamagal in a minute. but. The power of prayer and these rabbinic leaders, how Chazal view them, the rabbis view them. Remember, these are in the Mishnaic period. This is the Tana period. And these are the Amorayim, um, you know, in the Talmud period, talking about the Gemara period, talking about these leaders, like, and how they, how they think and how their learning is so strong. And then what happens? What happens? So he answers, okay, yes, for you, it's almost like he sees it as saving this guy's life. <laughs> right yeah if you do that he said you will have a place in the world to come he says swear to me and he swears to him and then what happens he opens up, he removes the tufts of wool immediately Rav ravhanina ben and dies and what does the executioner do he jumps in the fire and he dies and then it ends up That they are nice. They are enjoying the world to come. What is going on here? (laughs) So who can explain to me how you see this story? And what is it telling us? What's it telling us about prolonging life? What's it telling us about, you know, what we're encouraging? You know, the the Talmidim are saying, open up your mouth. It's clear you're going to die anyway. They're all standing by and they're witnessing it. W- what do you see? What do you see? Yeah?
0: The executioner. Sure, <laughs> to be be
1: the world to come. the Good job. I agree with you. I agree with you. I think he's really <laughs> the one who's the executioner becomes almost like the hero here. He shows mercy. What? Well, somehow the executioner puts it in his hands. Because he says, if I do this, can you? He sees it as controlling. Agreed. Agreed. Who gives them the authority? But clearly, these tanayim... And Remember, this is later generations Chazal telling this story over, kind of putting it in that plate. This isn't a garita, right? So we're learning something here from it. But right, he has some kind of like, like power, uh, right? It's, it's, it's baffling in many ways, and yet to some extent, and, and what I find baffling also, quite frankly, these are stories that are going to inform halachically according to Jewish law, how we respond to withholding withdrawing treatment of the terminally ill. These are what a lot of the postgame turn to. They look at these stories. Now I quite frankly think that they actually, and I'll I'll just be honest with you, I think they're taking a certain humanity from these stories in very, but but you're right like who who is this Rabbi to be able he's answering for God. Here he's saying I can't take life, my own life, because that's for God to do. And then what does he in turn do? He's making the decisions when he gets up there who's let in. Isn't that God's job? Who's standing at the pearly white gates? That's God, right? So isn't that, you find that interesting? I, you're right. And yet somehow he gains some kind of um, power. He's empowered in that way, which is interesting. Yeah?
0: Um, if, if- if we understand correctly that the executioner is a non-Jewish Roman? Yes? Yeah. Okay. Then what's interesting to me is that it, this is a little bit a story about the fine line between proselytizing and inspiring. Ah. That this non-Jewish Roman was was inspired huh. to join the the, the Jewish spirit. Mm. Of, of the rabbi. And, and um, actually, if he had lived, would have probably become Jewish.
1: Right. And he was deeply moved by his devotion um, to God. Yes. Yes. So here we see really withdrawing. When someone's in this deep state of pain, I'm using it for purposes of withholding, withdrawing, treatment. I think these texts deserve a lot more time than what we're giving them. But yes, I, I love the beautiful um Fortlach that you are coming up with. I just one more. Please. Yeah. inconsistent from the first part of it
0: where he says I can judge.
1: Yes. That's right. That's what you were saying before. Yeah. yeah. So
0: it's, so it's, it just adds confusion to
1: the Totally.
0: But there's a distinction. Not- yeah. What is? He, he was taking his own life. He was, take, he was taking, he was opening his mouth and allowing himself to die. And the second one, somebody who was assisting oh, his okay. death he Good. wasn't taking a positive action.
1: Excellent. And then, so I want to ask something. Why was that okay?
0: Because size of
1: So determining your own life. Ah. And I think what you said about kind of allowing him to facilitate a good action, because he might be left with what's on his hands here, might be very problematic. I'm telling you, this text is crazy amazing, right? Like there's a lot to look at here. Okay, yeah, please.
0: By taking out all of the, you know, the wet wool, etc. I mean, if you look at the Romans who one of us got to suffer, the executioner kind of also took a step back,
1: because
0: that would allow him not to suffer Right. Much. So he's in deep trouble. So it depends on much authority. So,
1: so he would be no matter where you go, right? Because right. now he sees, wow, I shouldn't have done this to this special guy, and then I'm going to be in trouble. Right, exactly. Excellent, excellent. Ah, uh, OK. This we're going to look at for a moment for you to just see, and we're going to go to yet another story in a moment. But there's a concept of a ghost. You know what? We're going to go back to that in a minute. I want to see the third story. We're going to go back to actual um, how this affects us um, in Jewish law about withholding, withdrawing treatment. But I want to go to something about pain and suffering and quality of life. Because there's something we haven't spoken about. It seems when we spoke about the story of Rebbe and the story of Rabbanina ben Trajon that there was physical pain. But there's another. Um, area where Chazal also care about, when I say Chazal, the Chachamim of the Mishnah and the Gemara um, where those rabbis are thinking about mental anguish as well. There's a kind of mental pain and suffering that we know that sometimes people can endure. Um, End of life suffering, maybe, maybe, um, maybe it's a mental illness, it could be that some people aren't feeling necessarily the pain, but they see that their life is um, really void of, of anything that they find meaningful, no matter how much therapy or how much um, they've, they've tried um, to have a more quality of life. Um, and sometimes that's something that we cannot discount, so much so um, that sometimes people feel that they want to end their life or they feel that they don't have... Um, you know, they don't have that support in their life anymore um, and it could be very hard for them. Um, so there's an example of mental anguish that I think the Gemara also talks about and I think it's a very telling, compassionate story as well. Um, unfortunately, I, I, I have it in the, the, the Aramaic, but I didn't start the story a little bit. I started translating it one line down and I apologize about that, but I'll start you off. Choni HaMagal, who was known, people say that his name Choni HaMagal. Anyone ever hear of Choni HaMagal? They call him the circle drawer that he set. The truth is, and I got this from Shlomo Na'e, who's a world-class rabbinic scholar, that Magal is not because he drew a circle. Magal was his profession. It's actually a, like a roller, like, you know, those steam rollers? But they used to put pitch. he He was... A magal was actually this roller that they used to put on top of um, the rooftops in in Jerusalem to prevent the water from seeping in. It's kind of like. So I asked him. I was I I I thought you were going to say it's kind of like Arizona, Um, because Eddie told me today that you know a lot of the homes are like clay and sealed, and there's like a sealant. And I was like, hey, like Amagal. So what was his profession? his profession was was a roofer, and that's why you needed rain. Why? Because otherwise you wouldn't have so much. This is from Shlomo Na'eh, you know, Shlomo, um, Professor Shlomo Na'eh. And so he said that actually Magal is more, if you look at the, he was, he was a steamroller, that's why he's called Colonial Magal. But this actually, this story begins after the story where he drew a circle and he makes a petition, another person who petitions God, who's able to talk to God and say, either you bring rain or I'm going to stay in this circle and I'm not going to move. And the way he was able to talk to that, that's Chania Magal. Anyway, Chania Magal's walking. This is Rabbi Yochanan tells another story. Chania Magal's walking and he sees a man, maybe you've heard this story, um, planting a carob tree. And he says, what are you doing? He says, I'm planting a carob tree. How long is it going to take? It's going to take around 70 years. You think you're going to be alive, says Choni to this man for 70 years to see this? He's like, no, but like my ancestors before me planted carob trees for me, I'm planting for my future. And that's where he says. Then after that, and this is where I started your translation, Choni sits down to have a little light snack, a meal. And what's it called? Was that, uh, who, who's, not Rumpelstiltskin, what's his name? The one who slept for years? Rip Van, Rip Van Winkle. It's a Rip Van Winkle, but they got it from us. So he sleeps, then to have, a, and he sleep overcame him. And as he slept, a rocky formation enclosed upon him, which hid him from sight, and he continued to sleep for 70 years. Now, what should be, once he wakes up, what should be fully grown? That carrot tree. When he awoke, he saw a man gathering food of a carob tree and asked him, are you the man who planted (coughs) the tree? And he said, I'm the grandson. And he said, it's clear I slept for 70 years. And then he saw his donkey who had given birth to several generations of mules and he returned home and he said, that should be an eye, he said, is the son of Choni the circle, meaning is my son here? And they said, no, he died, but his grandson's still living. And then he said, I'm Choni Hamagal. And no one would believe him. They had no one there who believed who he was. So where does he go? Where do Talmidei Chachamim go? They go to the Beit Midrash. So then he goes to the Beit Midrash and he says, he overhears the scholars and he says, they they used to talk and they were saying the law is clear, as clear as when Choni Hamagal used to say these laws because he had such clarity. And then he said, you know, he said, but I'm here, I'm here, talk to me. And no one would believe him. And he felt, really, that they didn't believe him or they didn't give him honor. And it hurt him greatly. It was, And what happened, it says, halash date. There was like a weakness. There was a weakness that he felt in his dot, in his mind. And I think the best way we could say that is that psychologically he really felt empty. He didn't have anyone. He felt very alone. No one knew him. And he just, he didn't, he, he didn't have anything in his life. So not only did he, and he's a person by the way who prayer, God answers Choni Hamagal's prayers. And what happens here? He prayed for death and he died. And Rabbah there says, very well-known statement, O Chavruta O Mituta, which means I have a Chavruta or I die, meaning you need a decent Chavruta, meaning you need someone in your life, someone he could talk to. He didn't have his family. They didn't believe him. He didn't have his community. They didn't believe him. And when someone is in that state, um, it's kind of funny because it's like it's, it's not his fault, right? It's not like he's kind of, it's really he just feels alone. Now, it could be he slept. What is that sleep that he was in? Is he the same person? He's a different, you know, whatever. <coughs> whatever happened there, here's a person He doesn't have anything. What do you think is a, a, a lasting message here of, of what it means um, to desire death? Um, when we know that you're supposed to save a life at all costs. How do you see this story? So is it really life anymore? Is it really life anymore? Are you really saving a life if you would want him to continue? It doesn't mean giving up. I mean, you saw he went to different places. And we are talking about a character in a ta- in the Tanaim period, and we are talking about someone who prays to God, and he gets his questions answered, and he can sleep for seventy years, and it is an gadata It's like you know, it's a it's a like a story, but but I think there's a message here. Yeah, sorry. I
0: think the message is that loneliness is a living death.
1: Yes. Right, and Chazal understood that. Um, And that's important for community. It's important for the Beit Midrash that people are welcomed in. There's a lot of other things we could say about this story as well. But one justification, I don't know, of asking to no longer be alive is when chalashtate, when you're feeling weak in your mind, when you feel like a certain mental anguish. And, And that was something that Chazal definitely showed a certain compassion for. Um, and I think it's demonstrated here. Yeah, please. It's almost He did not
0: take the action. He asked somebody else.
1: God, because God takes it. Yeah. Right? Right. Right. Hmm. So, with these stories, I know we don't... <laughs> okay, so with these stories, I want to kind of just turn back, and you tell me how you view um, some of the rabbinic texts, and I'm talking about the halakhic decisors. Now, when someone goes to someone, you know, Rabbi, I have a question. I get these questions, right? I at the end of the, you know, my my I, my is in this situation and not, you know, not doing well. What are this? What are, what am I supposed to say to the staff? Do I do a DNR? Did not resuscitate order? Am I supposed to? Um, do we daven for this person or, or is this person in a, like, wh- what do we want? What are we withholding? We have to save the life, but this person's not doing well. So this gets a little bit complicated. A few terms that I'd like to tell you. One is that someone who is deemed to die probably soon is known as a gossace. A gossace is someone who we think is going to die within three days. The problem with this nowadays, with all the technological advancements, is that someone can be hooked up to a respirator, a ventilator, they can be intubated, they can be connected to a heart pump. And as much as someone really left at their own devices without all these technological advancements, they could really continue on for a very, very, very long time. And so what determines a face is a little complicated nowadays. It's kind of hard to do it. There are people who say you still can. But it's very hard to pinpoint that. There's something that's a little bit longer, which is called a trefo. Someone who we think will live for probably a year, around a year, usually when someone unfortunately are given um, some really hard news from an oncologist, or you know, they're saying you have this much time to go on. Um, My sister-in-law's father just um, was nifter passed away a week ago, and he was a young man. But they told him he had like a few hours, and he ended up living for about a week and a half. So one never really knows, and he wasn't, you know, it wasn't really clear. Um, So the process can be even when other organs shut down, the process can be quite long. Um, So what do we do when someone, for example? is called a goses, or close to it. So during the time of the Ramar of Moshe Iserlis, he's medieval time, 16th century, they didn't have intubation then, and it was pretty clear. Here comes your feathers, by the way. Um, what they used to do, um, they went in, and I, I didn't know if you meant the feather to determine this, or the feather in the pillows. It used to be that when people would put, there was a thinking, I, I have no medical basis for this, but there was a thinking, you see this in a lot of the sources, that you can't remove the pillow from under him if someone wishes you to do so because these bird feathers are delaying his death. <laughs> I'm not quite clear why a bird fellow pillow delays death, but could be it's a comfort, I'm not sure. But that you're not allowed to remove. But what are you allowed to do, oh, right? And he shouldn't be moved, you shouldn't move a gosace. You shouldn't, some people say you shouldn't touch a go, says, you have to, right? But if there is something that prevents his soul from departing, this is, it takes us back to Rebbe, Yehuda HaNasi, with his Amma. such as, And it almost has, it like prevents, such as knocking noise near a house, like that of a wood shopper, or there's salt on his tongue. They used to do that to kind of keep them alert, like this is disgusting. It bothers them and it, it agitates them, right? It's permitted to remove it because this is not an affirmative act, but rather a removal of an impediment. Do you see what they're doing? You can't withdraw anything, but you can withhold certain things. That idea is very clearly taken from Rebbe, what happened in that story, that first story. And I wanted you to see that. And um, uh, so I also want you to see Rav Moshe Feinstein And this is interesting um, because he's talking about someone who's on a ventilator. Um, And and what do you do? Um, At first, he said the preceding discussion, which was the earlier answer that he gave about someone who is not on a ventilator. And they said, that person, you should do what you can to make them comfortable, whatnot. But here, what about a person who's on a ventilator? can I withhold or withdraw treatment? Can I disconnect them from the ventilator? Now, if you disconnect them from a ventilator, right, What? why are they on the ventilator? They can't breathe. Okay. So we know, and this is also going to be when we talk about criteria of death, that's why I put you through that, that pain and suffering of all the criteria of death, right? The if you hold that the criteria of death is irreversible cessation of respiration, and you can make that determination that there is no more blood activity um, in the brainstem, then that person who's sitting on a ventilator is no longer alive. And if you can make... Now, some people who are on a ventilator still can breathe. Now, Rav Moshe himself, and we're going to see this later, and if we don't get to it, you have it in your sources. He says that irreversible cessation of respiration is a criteria of death, right? Here, the assumption I'm making is that because he's going to say certain things that you can and can't do, can you remove the ventilator from a person? This is if someone who does, you're assuming that they are doing a little bit of breathing on their own, okay? How do you do it? So first, he's telling us that you... You can't just remove the ventilator if you think that there's some breathing, because then you're hastening their death. And this is assisting them, whatnot, right? You also can play around with the oxygen a little bit, right? But how can you remove it? Now, again, if the criteria of death is irreversible cessation of respiration, and you can show through an apnea test that they're no longer breathing on their own, then I would say, halachically, you may remove the ventilator, right? However, if that's not clear yet, what you can do is, and you feel that this person is just, maybe they have like assistance of the ventilator, right? And this person is unfortunately in a chronic case of, you know, their their organs are shutting down and they have cancer and they, you know they don't have a long time to live. And just having the ventilator is really just prolonging this suffering. And it's painful to see the family. It's painful to see them. What do you do? I first say to you, it's a case-by-case basis. But Rav Moshe is trying to be thoughtful about it. I can't take it off, because that could be maybe a removal that you're not allowed to do. But what can you do? Well, you know they have to clean these ventilators. You're a nurse, right? Sarah, you know. They have to clean. Sometimes they do have to clean these machines. And they have to take it off, right? So when they do that, at that moment, he was trying to think creatively. At that moment, you have to remove them. You give them a little bit more oxygen. Usually it only takes like two minutes. They kind of screw it off, and they clean out the area, and they change the tubing. You need to do that. And when they do that, what you could do is you could wait 15 minutes, and you could see now I think people say seventy. You wait 17 minutes and you can see that potentially, if the person doesn't need it again, it's kind of like you re-intubate them when you put it back in. So don't re-intubate. At that moment of cleaning, he says, be creative at that moment and be sensitive. And if you think it's time to kind of just see how they do while the cleaning process is happening, no one is obligating you to put it in. Because he said, that is withholding treatment rather than withdrawing, bless you. Because the withdrawal, you have to clean it, otherwise it gets infected and it's not good. You have to, that's part of the treatment of the. So he was trying to be creative about this process. I hope that's clear. Yeah. Right, they do it intermittently. It's kind of like the what's, the, what's that, the SOMET bike, right, that it stops in certain places, right, that it's not actively done, and then they see. The problem, some people don't want to do that because they feel if someone is still, they want them on the ventilator. And this, by the way, again, when I tell you to have your healthcare proxy, some people want, believe it or not, they want everything. They want the works. They want to be kept there. You never know. Maybe I'll start, maybe I'll come out of it. So for those people, they want it. I think the thinking lately is people understand now if someone is in such a dire straits, right, then it, they're probably not going to make it out. But yes, you're right, Rev. Silverstein. He, he was the one with the help of others who actually set it to timers where it would pause and then it doesn't continue. So people are taking it from there. Yeah, sorry, yeah, yeah.
0: So let's say in a medical opinion, uh, it's an irreversible situation. You're on a ventilator. You have an Mm -hmm. Your events director says, "If I'm in an irreversible situation, I don't want to be in this circumstance."
1: So, so if if the person he follows says that you are that the determination of death is through the criteria of irreversible cessation of respiration, and you can't breathe on your own, and you do enough apnea tests or you do a carotid angiography test, which they don't do so much anymore, it's more the apnea test, and they've determined that that area is no longer being perfused through the blood, and they can make that determination, then that person is dead already, and removal would be okay. If they don't hold by that, and they hold by cardiac death, right, cardiopulmonary death, then it's gonna be a little bit more complicated to remove it, but, If someone has intubated against their wishes, that's another story. A person shouldn't do that. A person can say, I don't want initially to ever be intubated. That gets, I mean, let's say someone's having, unfortunately, a heart attack or something like that, and they don't have an advanced direct, they don't have a DNR, do not resuscitate, because it might be an acute thing. It's not something that's a chronic, um, like, uh, that they're having some kind of edema. They're having... uh, um, Uh, uh, you know some kind of stroke or you know know, congestive heart failure something like that often people can be extubated and they can go on and live normal lives but for some people um, it ends up being they have one of these episodes and it ends up dragging on that's where it gets complicated right because they never wanted to be like that in the first place but it, it makes sense if someone asks me you have someone who is an older patient presenting with um, as um, so, you know, they're, they're having um, a heart attack, should I, and they need to be entubated, they're not breathing on their own, should we do it? And I'm like, yeah, of course you, you do what you can to save their life, um, and hopefully they come out of it. But often, um, you'll have situations where you didn't expect to be in this situation, or, or let's say someone who goes through uh, a surgery, and it's a, it's a regular, like, you know, they needed to go through a certain surgical procedure, and they can't be extubated. They can't be extubated. They can't get them off the breathing machine. Things like that happen. Um, People don't plan on being that. It was supposed to be a routine surgery and they don't come off it. Um, And that gets complicated. Then you have to figure out why they can't be extubated. And if it's that they can't breathe on their own um, and they're in that state, then that's gonna be difficult. But there are people who do have some brain activity. um, uh, um, um, Sorry, brain stem activity. (coughs) And they still can breathe a little bit on their own. Sometimes they're even conscious and they see that. They don't want to live like that, but that's if they're conscious enough to make that determination for themselves, they certainly should be able to. Yeah? So if you're sitting there with somebody that is lying there on ventilator, and they go, and they push off, do Great question. The question was, (laughs) um, what happens if you have a patient and this happens who has been intubated and they wake up and they see they've been intubated and they're talking and they take the the, either the trach and they take it and they shove it or they have like an NG tube. They're throwing it all off, right? And you see this and they don't want it. Now the question is, you also wanna determine that they can make that decision for themselves in this state. Often when they intubate someone, they certainly do have certain drugs. If they're over 70 often, they give them Xanax, which is a drug that sometimes can cause agitation. So you wanna make sure that those drugs are, are not interfering with their decision making. And that is why, but if someone had an advanced directive and it said, if they didn't have an advance directive, but they, let's say they did, and they had an advance directive and they do this, that was to some extent a clear determination. I didn't want you doing this, so you shouldn't intubate again. If they don't have an advance directive and you're not clear why they're shoving that off, then you have to be very, you know, very careful legally to know and understand, because the hospital's responsibility is to treat initially. What is your responsibility to to who to a person who. And person, they're, they're so off if you office. know that they don't want it, if you know for sure, yeah. If if they don't want it, then that's your responsibility <coughs> to. Um, there are certain things that we didn't get to, you have in your handout, and because of the time, I'm going to... No, 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 I want to answer you. I, the, I wanna, I'm just going to ask you to read it inside so you know that I'm not making this up, okay? That there are a lot of um, decisors who will say, oxygen, food, that's what you need to give them. But if someone doesn't want any advanced revenue, it's your responsibility to not give them like antibiotics if it's going to prolong the suffering, to make sure that if they don't want intubation, that you hear that and that you, you follow their directive. And that's, again, why I'm saying that an advanced directive is so important. I'm not only saying this for Jewish law. I'm someone who worked in bioethics without Jewish law as well. And I can tell you that it's very important that people should follow their advanced directive to be able to make these determinations, because otherwise, you assume that you're going to treat. And that could get you into difficulty. As a, and you're saying, what is your responsibility, right, to a patient in Jewish law? I say your responsibility is to educate as much as you can. What are the to sign a, a living will, to talk with more than the living will, to have a healthcare proxy, to talk these issues out with someone who's a halachic authority, who you feel comfortable, who could actually um, make sure that your wishes. Are, 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 are met with a, with, a, with a phone number and with a place where your healthcare proxy can call. And if you do, that healthcare proxy is not available with another follow-up person because you don't always have that option. And you should give it to your doctor and you should give it to your lawyer. And you should make sure for you to have someone to have a voice for you when you can't speak for yourself. And that needs to be respected and it needs to be acknowledged. And I'm saying la that is a responsibility. And we have that responsibility. Um, so much so that you have <laughs> other situations, which we didn't go through, um, where you've had cases where people have asked and pleaded for mercy in that way. Please, I don't want to be in this situation. Um, Please make sure to the best of your ability that the way in which I'm being treated won't put me in a compromised state and won't put my family in a situation where they're going to have to make these determinations. What we didn't talk about tonight, which gets very tricky, I would say the trickiest of them all, is persistent vegetative state. And a persistent vegetative state is where someone breathes on their own and they're not conscious at all. And more often than not, it's a state where people are not expecting to be in that state. And how do we treat? And in those situations, we really have to be sensitive to the quality of life of this patient. People have woken up from it, but more often than not, do not. It's the quality of life we're looking at. We're looking at the financial burden and the emotional burden on a family. And also, would a person ever want to be in a situation like that? And so for that, the people aren't intubated. So they're breathing on their own anyway. But do you continue to treat with antibiotics? You give, you give hydration and you give oxygen because that has been known to, without that, could cause severe pain. But do you have to put an NG tube in? If someone has an NG tube, it's a feeding tube. Do you pull, if they pull it out, what are you going to do? Are you going to keep on putting it back in? So often people say, no, you don't, because clearly it's gonna co- it potentially also could cause more damage. What about dialysis? Dialysis could be harmful also, and that is also a painful process. And if someone says at a certain point, I can't endure that pain anymore, then we need to hear about that pain and suffering. Again, saving a life at all costs, but if it causes someone to have a quality of life that is not a life, we need to look at these sources, we need to hear these sources, we need to use them as a model of what it means to value a life that is worth living, I would say. There was a case that I gave you at the very end where there's a girl with Tay-Sachs disease. Yael Sheffer was her mother, and it was brought before the Supreme Court in Israel. And she had Tay-Sachs, and she was suffering not yet, but en route. And the mother didn't want it to get to the point of something so terrible that she would see their four-year-old daughter suffer so. And... The court determined, and I think rightly so, give hydration, give nutrition, but certain things you do not need to give artificial respiration. You do not need to unnecessarily treat because we know that the, what's going to end up happening um, in the future for this girl, Tay-Sachs, they don't make it through. And that's where I think the halachic sensitivity needs to come in and we need to be mindful. Again, I reiterate, case by case, Every case is different and you can't just, I can't just stand up here and say, yeah, that's right, you can always remove it. You, you can't do that. And that's not in, in any ethic, bioethical question. You need to examine the case. You need to examine who are the players and what's going on. Once I spoke about a case, there was a man who was older, he was a wealthy man. He was a diabetic and his, he didn't have any children. He had a niece and nephew who really wanted, it was determined that they really were anxious for his inheritance. And they said, oh, he's suffering so from his arthritis and his arthritic pain. We shouldn't treat him. He was in the hospital for something. We shouldn't treat What do you mean you shouldn't treat him? That's what he wanted. Nah, he really didn't want that. And that wasn't stipulated anyway. You have to also protect the patient. It's not always don't treat. But when you see have clear, outstanding pain and suffering, let's be mindful, let's be creative, and let's be thoughtful, and let's be true to um, our true values of... of of how medicine can help treat us in life um, for quality and for true living. Thank you. If there are any questions, any questions.
0: hi. This is Shmuley Yanklewitz. I hope you enjoyed listening to this fascinating lecture.